see, I went ahead and put the basic flow of thought, starting with chapter 12 all the way through the end of chapter 13, so that you could see kind of what's going on here. I just want you to see it one more time, that what we see in this, in this uh, author's thinking is we have him giving us an altar call in chapter 12, 18 to 24, where he's, he's again calling them into this new covenant. They've been in the old covenant. That's who these people are. That, that's what they've known. That's where they've come from. And now he's saying in Jesus Christ, and he's laid it all out before in all the chapters before, that Jesus is better. It's a better way to approach God. And so he, he, he asks them in verses 18 to 24 to enter into the new covenant of which Jesus is the mediator of. Then um, he gives a uh, kind of a, it sounds like a warning but I think what it is, it, it is a warning. He's saying, do not refuse him to those who are yet maybe I in that indecisive place, potentially. And he's not saying they are or they aren't. He's just potentially approaching those that may not have fully entered in. If there are some among them who are wavering, who are considering to fall by the wayside, who are considering to not stay the course and not endure in the things that they have learned about Jesus and who he is, He's saying, do not refuse him. And can anybody remember some of the things that we have been seeing in this book about why they should not refuse? What were judgment. judgment is coming. And if you and if you continue to uh, pursue in willful sin after you've received knowledge of the truth, then what? There is no other. So there's nothing else left for you. There is nothing left but a terrifying expectation of judgment. Okay, so he says, do not refuse. Then in 12, 28, and 29, he also then skips back to the others, and he says, for those of you who are in faith, this is a call to faithfulness. And he says, in gratitude to God, you are to offer him an acceptable service in reverence and awe, right? Which is what we have spent this week working on is all those various ways which he then explains that are acceptable acts of service because they have just come out of an old system that acceptable service was done very differently, right? Yes. What was their old way of acceptable service to God? The law. The law. What else? I mean, and in the law, sacrifice. what? Sacrifices specifically. And if you keep going back and sacrifice, if you choose to, having heard that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, he's the better sacrifice, if you choose to go back to the old system, then you are really trampling underfoot the blood of the new covenant, right? All right, so we're, we've seen then an altar call, a call into faith, and a call to faithfulness. Then in th at the close of chapter 13, he gives a benediction. And I put a little music notes next to this. He says, God will equip and work in you. But, I mean, how many of us have ha had sermon after sermon in our own experiences? At the end of it, there's always a benediction where the pastor asks you to raise, and he gives a, a parting word of what God will do in you and for you and how he will be there, right? It, it, doxologies often are sung. So it's a benediction. And then his last parting words, which were, grace be with you all. So that is in conclusion to his sermon. So now let's go back and let's relook at our context again and look to see if we can 
fine-tune some of our thoughts about the context of this book because this, is the mo this has been the most challenging book I've ever done. I know I did this before, but honestly, I feel like I never did this before <laughs> because it, I think the first time through, I was on such a low level of trying to grasp all the pieces that I, d I missed the big picture. I got down in the weeds, and I got, I got stuck down there, and I did not s elevate myself high enough to see the bigger picture of what was going on in this book. So, and I think that's probably the case for so many, because if you go online and listen to sermons, have any of you guys, do guys done that through these weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, months of studying this? Have you gone online to listen to any of the Hebrews, te the teachers online or on YouTubes? I have. They are all over the map all over the map, especially in those difficult-to-handle passages. And so y you have to learn first for yourself what you know you see in there and then go with, go with a discerning ear to hear others. And I think that obviously the first time I did this, I just completely missed it. I didn't, I didn't know enough to know what I didn't know even, which is a good lesson, right? Well, now it is. Yeah. Well... <laughs> It is. I mean, it's a process. Inductive Bible study is a process of learning and growing. You get enough of a platform beneath your feet, and it, the next time you do it, you've already got, s it's like doing Revelation for the second time, which I've now done it three times. <laughs> and every time I broaden my platform, I get, I, get a better, I get a better grip on what's going on in there. It's been very exciting. Okay, so let's start here with the author's purpose for context. Because this one we've got nailed. Author's purpose. He gives us a purpose statement. Does anybody remember what chapter and verse? Okay, I'm going to go. Yes, it is. In 1322, he says to them what? Bear with this word of exhortation. And so we know it's a word of exhortation. And by what venue does he give this word of exhortation? Well, this shows us right here with this flow of thought. He does it by giving a congregational sermon, right? Through a congregational sermon. Do you think that makes a difference for you in understanding this book, that it's actually a, con a, a sermon to a congregation? Has that been helpful in bringing that up? I think so. Okay, so it's congregational sermon. All right, now let's look at the, the, well, we'll do the book theme, but let's do that second. Let's do the other parts first. Book, I'm going to put a place in here for the book theme so we don't miss doing it. But let's go back and remind ourselves about key words in this book because I do think, you know, we all know it's a building block, right? It's, a, it's one of the most primary things that we do in doing inductive Bible study. What are keywords valuable to us for? Why do we identify keywords when we're doing this? Okay, they sh they some they somehow eventually point us to the actual theme of a book, right? Because what they do is they show you by what's repeated the most what the author seems to feel is most important, right? Whatever's repeated the most is what's most important, right? What has been repeated the most? We've got a lot of keywords, but... Let's just focus on the really big ones. 
Jesus. Okay, we got Jesus and who else? Jesus and God. So those are two major key subjects in this particular book. And there is a great deal of uh, emphasis on them. There are other letters, other epistles, where Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit are mentioned, but they aren't like the direct purpose, right? But in this book, absolutely, Jesus is the direct purpose. And God is also, by the way, okay? Because it's like he is the initiator and Jesus is the fulfiller, correct? All right. What else do we have for keywords? Faith, big one. Would you say if you hold on to the, oh, now there's a synonym to faith. What is it? Believe. Let's put that on there too. Um, would you say that by holding on to that as something that is major in this book, that is you're thinking now in hindsight back to each of the chapters that you can see because we now know it's a congregational, it's a sermon, and his point is he's, he's drawing people into faith or he's drawing people into faithfulness, that faith obviously becomes huge, right? Now that in hindsight, in the beginning, we were more focused on some of the other things like Jesus in particular because we could, we could see that in the bite pieces as we went piece by piece by piece. But by the time we got to the end and we now realize what we're looking at as a sermon, now that subject becomes bigger, does it not? Yeah, all right. So faith and believe. Covenant is another one. And in context to this book, there's the, the covenant is broken down into what? Old and new. And there's a constant contrast between the two, right? All right. Pardon? And that better than. Okay. Priesthood. Okay. The pr the pr that Jesus is the great high priest. Priest and priesthood. Okay. Very good. God has spoken. Okay. Now that is good. Now how am I going to put that on there? Because it would go if you started to make a list on God, you would see what about God gets repeated a lot. Have, has anybody in here at any point done a list to say, follow that subject God has spoken and to see how many times God has spoken? Did you do it? Well, I haven't written it out there yet, thinking about it. Well, I can. And then his final word Right. Okay, so he speaks, and then Jesus fulfills it. He speaks again. And so how many times do we have quotes in this particular book? Almost like every chapter, right? This, it almost never ceases. It's some kind of a quote in almost every chapter. And every time he gives a quote, and then he follows it up with how Jesus has fulfilled it, hasn't he? Isn't that an amazing, that's a good point. So, um, let's see. Um, I'm not, I'm just going to put on here quotes. And then God does. <laughs> scripture spoken. Okay, there you go.
I like that. Yes, okay. And then he, and then we are here. So it's, so it does, would you say that in that then it almost takes us to another key word, which is he's constantly calling us to do something, which he is, which is this, the let us. Let us not refuse, let us hear, let us re, uh, believe, let us enter, let us, right? Let us, so let's use that as the way to approach that one, let us, because that is a key repeated phrase in our book, right? And how big does that become through the whole book when you consider it through that perspective? It is everywhere. It's, it's like from the very first chapter all the way through. And at the end, it gets even heavier because then it gets into the sanctification qualities. Prior to that, it's really addressing more entering into faith, right, and believing and then obeying it. So we see let us becomes huge in this book, okay? Um, I'm going to add one on here that you all haven't mentioned, and that's faithfulness and endurance, because those also, because that's the other side of it. There's the let us enter, right, into it. Um, but then there's also the, though for those that are in it, he wants to call them to faithfulness and endurance. And I don't, you could call those two different key words if you wanted. But for what we're looking at right now, I think it's okay to put them together, Okay. And discipline would be the other one, because it comes up particularly in one chapter especially, right? And that the idea of faithfulness, you can't have discipline if you aren't being faithful, right? You can't have endurance if you're not being faithful. So faithfulness is really the major part of it. Now, when, when you look at that, then let's just talk about the major subjects then again. Major subjects. That are addressed in this particular book. The first one I'm going to put on here is a call to enter into faith. A call to enter faith, right? When you look right at the very beginning, go. someone flip into chapter 2, verse 1. Actually, 1, 2, and 3. Somebody else look at chapter 3, verse 1. Someone else look at 4, 3. And let's read those three or four verses. Who's got the first one, chapter two? Okay, good. Donna. Uh, just, yeah, yeah. For this reason, we pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Okay, that's good enough. So it, how shall we... Ne how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So in that, there's a call to enter into faith, right, and a warning with it that there's judgment for those who refuse to enter in. Okay, so go to chapter 3, verse 1. Who has that one? Okay, Diane. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, so he makes another direct statement here that this is a heavenly calling. So right there we should have picked up on the fact that he's calling. <laughs> he's saying, 
congregation, I want you to come. I want you to enter. I want you to recognize that this is God's calling from heaven. Okay, and then we want 4-3. Who has that one? Okay. Okay, so in that, that follows from chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, all the way through those first two or three verses in chapter 4, where he's talking about the idea of entering in, and those who did not enter did not because of what? Disobedience and unbelief. So what is the evidence of unbelief? Disobedience, right? The evidence of, of unbelief is disobedience. So what would be the opposite of that? If you have belief, then what's the evidence? Obedience. obedience. Wow. Marvelous, con marvelous conclusion there. Okay, so he says this is a call to major subjects. First, it's a call to interfaith. Then the secondary thing I see here is it is a call to faithfulness. So let's look at that side of it. Faithfulness in faith, for those who are in faith, and that's where you see a lot of let us statements. We aren't going to get to all of them, but I want to look at several. Uh, chapter 3, there's two of them that we started, and early on I kept hanging on to these as really significant. They just really stood out to me as something that seemed to be pivotal points. Look at chapter 3, verse 6 and 14. Who's got that one? But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. If we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. Okay, so the opposite would be if we do not hold fast, then what? We are, his. We are not his house. Okay, now go to 14. For if we have become partakers of Christ, if we, for we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Okay, again, the opposite would be if we, do, if we do not hold fast the assurance, what? We have not become partakers of Christ. Now, last week, we looked at the word partakers. We saw the word definition in the original language, right? What, we're, what is a partaker in relationship to? What is that subject matter addressing? Pardon? Covenant. It's a covenant term. It's talking about coming into the fellowship, right, and, and be becoming one with something, correct, and partaking of it. All right, then there's another one in 3.18. Let's look at that one also. Who is it that won't enter in? Who is it that is not holding fast? Those who are being disobedient. Disobedient to what? To the word of God, to the voice of God, to the, to the call of God, right? This heavenly message, this heavenly calling. If you're being resistant to it, if you're not hearing it, if you're not, if you're not willing to obey it, then, then you will not enter. You will not enter is what he's saying to them. Okay, so now he, in, when we move forward into chapter 6, we see him address an issue with this congregation that apparently is a problem for them, right? What is it that he, that he addresses with them there in chapter, the end of five and into the first part of six? Their immaturity. What was the problem? What's going on with this church? 
those things which are called the elementary teachings. Now, we come to the conclusion that the elementary teachings is speaking about going back to an old way, not pressing into the new covenant, but holding on to the what? To the old covenant. Apparently, there were some in their midst that this pastor had either heard of through the grapevine or he himself had witnessed some somehow he knew and he is challenging this congregation and saying you cannot go back to the old you must press into the new and because you've not also grown in your faith you are now missing the boat on understanding your new covenant he talked to them about the fact that um, they had at that point were misunderstanding how Jesus was now their new high priest because he was high priest, but how? According to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek's, the history and the understanding of that, they would have attained it from where? What's quoted? All the Old Testament is quoted. Did God, had God, through ages past, not informed humanity of his plan for the ages, which was, from before the foundation of the world, that when the, when the seed would come, when the Savior would come, that he would be a great high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Yes, so he quotes those verses to us and tells us that. So, that, so he's telling them in chapter 6, verse 1, then they need to do what? They need to mature and press into maturity. Okay, and now here's a couple of warnings. Let's go to chapter 12, 14. Because, you know, there, I think the issue here is just like the issue is for our churches today. We have a lot of people who come into the congregation, have somewhat affixed themselves to the congregation. They attend church. They sit in the pew every week and so forth, but they're not fully committed to it. They, there's not that passion of love for God and faithfulness to him yet. They're walking the fence. There's one foot in the world and one foot, foot in the church, right? And so he here now in chapter 12, he warns them about the fact that there are some who, even if they're affixed to the church, may not ever see the Lord. What does he say to them in chapter 12? 12, 14. Okay. And in my scripture, it says, pursue sanctification, which is, without which no one will see the Lord. So what? explain that to me in English. If you had a friend that you were having conversation with, having coffee with, and they said, well, what does that mean I have to pursue sanctification? What is that talking about? But I was baptized, and I have a certificate that said I'm <laughs> saved, and it's... And it's all done. So why, why, if, if salvation is by grace, very funny, if salvation is by grace, why do I have to pursue anything? Okay. Has, has this particular book really 
reiterated that in, in a variety of ways as we've progressed through it, where he said over and over that it seems like there has to be evidence that is affixed to salvation, or maybe, evi- or if, and if not, possibly you are one who will never see the Lord? Because it is, yes. What is it that motivates a person to even want to do that? If, a, if you see a person who keeps saying, I love the Lord, but you don't see in them any evidence of that, what does that kind of tell you as you're observing them? Yeah, that they're, yeah, that's right, very good. Good one, Celeste, they're a liar. Actually, we looked at a, liar, <laughs> you're a liar. <laughs> That right. Okay, but and you know we can we we can kind of make light of it, but the thing is, this is a serious subject because we have people who would absolutely adamantly stand in front of you and they would plant both feet and they would they would hold up their fists and they would say, if you claim the name of Jesus, you are saved. But you need evidence. There should be evidence, shouldn't there? And so in this particular book, what I would say is, do you think there's a call? a very strong call, really, not even subtle, um, for us to examine our lives to see whether or not we are actually walking in a manner that we should, that we are... One of the verses at the close of 10, we're going to look at that one here in a minute. Um, In chapter 10, it says, my righteous one shall live by faith. When God promised in Ezekiel 36 that he was going to give them a new covenant one day, and he said, when I give you this new covenant, how is it going to be different from the old? What was going to be the change? We did this in chapter uh, 8, I think it was, of Hebrews. Mm -hmm. In the new covenant. There you go. The law will now no longer be written externally on tablets of stone. My law, I will remove your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my law within you. And then what's going to happen then as a result? What should happen as a result? You will walk in my precepts and my statutes. You will be sanctified. Why? Because you have my spirit within you now which causes you to have a conviction and an I want to, to do the things that, that pursue sanctification. So those, and, and you will then walk in the spirit because you have the spirit. That's what causes you to have the, the I want to, to do things. I mean, have you ever had people in your life that, that, you know, they claim to be a Christian, but all the time you are p- pushing them to do the right thing? I've had that. I've had relationships like that in my past. Um, it is frustrating to have a person say they know God and yet they never do the godly thing. <laughs> You're always saying, no, don't do that. No, don't say that. No, please, let's go do this. No, I don't want to. Please, let's do this. We really should do this. This would be good. This you have to beg them through every door, right? Or push them down to stop them from doing things that are, that are ungodly or unchristlike. Because when 
people who claim to be a Christian walk in a, in, in a manner which is ungodlike, unchristlike, what does that do? There you go. How many of us have heard stories on the news about pastors or priests or other leaders and they've done these horrible things? And what is the first thing that comes to my mind is, oh my gosh, God's name is getting drugged through the dirt. Because, and God, this is not of God. This is not the Lord, right? Okay, so he says this is a call to faithfulness. Hold fast your, your confession and assurance. Have faith that is exhibited by obedience. Press into maturity. Pursue sanctification. These are the things that if you are truly in faith, that they should be evidenced in your life. They should be present in your life. Um, he tells us in chapter... Uh, 10 and also 12, that you have need of endurance. Why? Well, because when you go back to chapter 3, he said, you have to do this until when? Until the end. You have to go to the end of your life doing this. This is not something you get finished with at the age of 60. (laughs) 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 We're going to be 60 this 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 well next week I know I can't believe I'm going to be 60 next week <laughs> I'm staying 59 forever but if but I'm going to be so when I'm 60 do I get to stop no. I've arrived I'm done I've done my part I'm finished no. no you have to keep pursuing it says all the way to the end um l- we just finished in chapter 12 where we hit the subject that you brought up earlier um about discipline what is it about discipline and being a partaker of it that God has said is part of the package? What has he said about discipline? Okay, very good. And if you are not willing to be disciplined for the sake of holiness, for the sake of honoring God in your life, which means doing some things and not doing other things, right? One of them is James that says, bridle your tongue, right? So if you're not willing to do one of those things, then because you're not willing to be disciplined by God, then you are what? Illegitimate. Illegitimate. I would consider what he's really saying there is you need to examine to see whether you're actually in faith or not. If you are so, what is the right word? Uh, if you're not bothered with God, if, if God is not a priority, if God is, you know, that's too much work. That's too much work. I don't want to do that work, right? That's too hard. Then if, if that's your attitude, then I would say, well, where's the spirit of God in you that, that says I will cause you to walk in my precepts and my statutes? If you have the spirit of God, you will want to, right? Okay, so s- all sons, by the way, if in fact you are a son, all sons are partakers of discipline. So how are you going to identify a true believer? the ones who are willing to be disciplined in their life for the sake of righteousness and holiness, right? All right. Um, Okay, so that's a call into faith. That's the second. So one subject, a call to inner faith. Second one is a a, uh, call to faithfulness in faith. Um, The other one, another major subject, are all the warnings, right? Warnings uh, if you refuse. Over and over we see this. So one in chapter 2, 
verses 2 and 3. We just read it. I think, Donnie, you read it, right? How will we escape God's judgment if we neglect so great a salvation? Was that you that read that one? Yeah. Okay, in 6.8, go to 6.8, somebody. Go into th also someone else do 3.15. Someone else go to 4.1. And then we'll hit the big grand finale in 10 here, just a second. Okay, tell me what you see in 6 8. Okay, so when we went through that particular difficult passage in chapter 6, we were talking about the idea that this had to do with um, the works of people, what will remain and what will not remain, right? But now that we see the context being a call into faith, Let's, let's consider that one again real quick, because it, it could actually, I think, take a different slant at this point. Let's go back and look at it. He says, press on to maturity. Don't lay again that foundation of repentance from dead works and so forth. Verse 4, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have had tasted of the heavenly gift, have been, in other words, they've received his sermon. Anybody who's received the sermon, they know the news, they know the good word of God, right? And yet they have fallen away, meaning what? They go back to the temple in the case of these, right? It's impossible to renew them again um, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. In other words, they keep going back to the old temple to re-crucify the, the substitute rather than accepting the once-for-all sacrifice. If they keep refusing that, there is no repentance for them. There's no way to bring them out. If they refuse the truth, what is there left for them? Right? And so then what he says here, it's very interesting. If you consider, he's speaking congregationally. So, okay, here, congregation, the rain's falling. What kind of ground is it going to fall on? If it, if it falls on good soil, which is the sower and the seed, and Diane, you brought that one up ages ago, that this was very much like the sower and the seed idea, and that is exactly correct. Where, where is this, this, this particular author, this pastor, as he's preaching and the rain is falling down upon them, what is it producing in you? Is it going to produce... A fruitful vegetation, or is it going to produce thorns and thistles? The thorns and thistles in the context of this book would be what? Refusing to accept it and to believe it. Refu refusing to mature. Refusing, consequently, at the end of it all, is simply refusing Jesus as the one that God had promised, Right? Okay, so w now when we look at this, we can say, oh man, maybe this has nothing to do with the works of a believer, but this has to do with the rain that's falling on this congregation. And he's saying, let's wait and see what happens. Jesus says, you will know a tree by its fruit. So maybe that's what this one is really talking about here. Now that we see this as a congregational message of calling people either into faith or into faithfulness, right? I think it's talking about their experience with it because there's another verse earlier he talks about by signs and wonders that it was confirmed to them. 
So that's what I think he's making a reference to. I think he's speaking about those that have, have had that experience of seeing it all around them. There doesn't mean they have, though, how, because th why do I know that? Because if they have received it, what? They would be, exactly. And that's where the rain lets us know which one became the partaker and which one didn't. The rain that falls that receives a blessing because they're producing vegetation useful are, are true partakers. And he's, this whole book is about look to see which one you are. Did you really become a partaker of Christ or did you not? And he's saying, and if you, ha and if you have, then the vegetation should be good. That's what, and remember the parable or the, the imagery that's given is for them to, to get a general message. It's not a specific thing. So, that's right. Right, when you refuse the Holy Spirit, that's and right. Said you can sin against me and that's, but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, th I think what he's saying is this, if you have, it's the same thing as back in chapter 3, verse 6. If you have become partakers, then you will hold fast. He's saying in here, if you have become partakers, then, then you will produce useful vegetation. If you're producing something else, you better be considering that you never received that Holy Spirit. Sally, are you speaking in tradition? Yes, I am. I am. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, and that's why I'm saying we needed to have this conversation today because, because when you get the context in this book about it being a sermon and he's saying to them either come into faith or be faithful in faith, then when you go back to that particular one, it really isn't talking to just a believer. That's not the single audience. What he's really saying is, are you? The evidence will be proven in the fruit that's bearing. If you are, you will produce vegetation that's useful. If you aren't, then you need to, like he said in chapter 4, be, uh, go back to chapter 4, wasn't it? 4, 1, or 2? <coughs> yes, it does. Thank you. <laughs> oh, you're so good, Susan. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, because then he follows this. He says, but, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. So in other words, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And if you have been, and we all can do it, if you have been resting on your laurels, we talked about that before, resting on laurels, if you've become lazy, if you've become sluggish, if you've become slow of hearing, if for, if for whatever reason along your walk you began to regress, he's saying, I believe better things of you. And, he, and he's exhorting them to step back in line and now grow in their maturity, grow in their faith, and to begin to be sanctified as they should and to walk in, in the way that they should, right? He's calling them into faithfulness, and, then he's, and he's saying, for those of you who won't, this is a warning. The warning is the fruit is going to show whether you are or you aren't in your life. So let's look at, um, well, what was it, four that I said I was going to go back and look at? Yeah, he says, see, in verse one, his, he's talking about them entering into the rest, and he said, therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest. How long are we promised to be able to enter into the rest of God? For how long? 
until we take our last breath or he comes to take us away, right? So until you die, you have opportunity. He says, but we better fear. We better examine ourselves. We better look at our lives. Fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. So you take that and go back to chapter um, 6, and you see that he's basically saying, if you've partaken of it, then there should be good fruit. And if you haven't, you better be careful. Maybe you have come short of it. Maybe you never did receive it. And then he goes in verse 9, but I'm going to believe better things of you. So he tries to land it on a positive note. I'm going to believe better things of you. So, but I'm challenging you. You need to examine your life, see where you're standing, see what you're doing, see where you, what you're engaging in. Is sanctification a part of your life? Are you being disciplined, allowing God to discipline in your life? And if those things are true, those are evidences of true faith. And I would certainly say in this group, you all fall in that category because the disciplines are there. The hunger for God's word is there. The desire to know deeper the things of God are there. You have not become dull of hearing. You've been, you've been the opposite by being in a class like this. You are actually taking the, the higher calling of cert, you know, committing your life to hours of homework in order to pursue sanctification. And the knowledge, because by the way, when he rebuked them about not pressing into maturity, what was their number one failure? They were not in the word of God. They had not been trained by the word of righteousness. Because they had failed to do that, they, you can't mature outside of the word of God. You just can't. You can do all the works in the world you want, but if you're not in the word of God, faithfully studying to, to know God better, you will never truly mature. You may, you may get to a plateau and hang in there. And I think that's, in part, what he's challenging them on. He's saying, look, you guys came to a certain place. You said you nodded your head yes, and you kept showing up to church every week. But now you've not gone on. You've not pressed into maturity. And so these things that I'm now trying to talk to you about concerning this new covenant that you're in, you, will, you are such infants in the word, and your ears have become so, so dull. I'm going to have to take two steps back and retrain you in things that you should have already been teaching by this time. It's, I mean, he's been pretty hard on them in, in some ways, but apparently they have been sitting back on their laurels for too long. And he has finally basically said, okay, this is it. We've got to have a come to Jesus meeting. <laughs> we got to find out how many of you actually came to Jesus and how many of you did not. And I'm going to lay it out for you so that you can examine your own life and determine whether you did or whether you didn't. If you didn't, no problem. How long do you have in order to do that? Until the, until the end. But right now, you need to fear lest you have come short of it. Wow. All right. So that's three major subjects. A call to interfaith, a call to faithfulness if you are truly in faith, and that there'll be evidences of it if, if it's true. Warnings if you refuse it, right? Then we have two other major subjects, which are where we started in this study on, where we hung for hours and hours and hours. And that the first one is about the, co the comparison between what? The old, old and new covenant. Were those major in quite a few of the chapters? Yes. yes. 
but it's very interesting because when you look back on it now and you, you view it through the prism of a sermon to call people into faithfulness, what you can see is all the comparisons were to show you why you should be faithful into the new, why you should be pressing into the new, right? He would give you the Old Testament quotes and he would show how Jesus fulfilled it and therefore leave the old and press into the new, right? So we're going to look at, uh, let's add this on here um, as our fourth major subject, which is the old and the new compared. And showing, and thereby, our next subject is, what do, what do we end up with? Jesus is better. better. Now we're at Jesus is better. He's a better, a better what? Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Heinz. Okay, um, w what were the three major things that this scripture in Hebrews shows us Jesus is better concerning? A better sacrifice, a better high priest, and a better covenant. Those are the three major things that are shown when you're looking at the, particularly comparing the old covenant to the new. Yes, now Heinz? Right. Well, I, it's an indicator. <laughs> That's right. There's probably one exception anyway. <laughs> oh, yes. Good, yes, absolutely. Go ahead. <laughs> that is exactly right. That is the key. No, no, no. And as a matter of fact, which is where we're heading to right now after we finish with the context setting because we're just about done with it. Now that you have a better grip on what the context of this book is and what its purpose is, we need to title it. And then we need to do exactly what you've just said, Heinz. Okay, now if you are at this point in your mind saying, yes, I believe I have the Holy Spirit. I believe that I am willing to be disciplined by God in that way. I've already taken some of these steps, right? Now let's go to the next step because then the next step is what we looked at all week long where he's saying, what is that pursuing of sanctification about? And we need to look at the, at the things which, which are acceptable service to God, okay? There you go. Faith without works is? dead it's useless it's pointless if and it's not saying you earn your salvation is it no. but it's saying that if in fact you are saved what there will be i will cause you to walk in my precepts and my statutes because i place my spirit within you and my spirit is going to cause you to want to right mm-hmm That's right. And, you're gonna care for what and if you have no gratitude in your heart to God that you want to be, to be disciplined of him, then... It doesn't matter how many certificates you've got. Thank you. You're, you're right. That's exactly right. It doesn't matter if you have a public testimony. It doesn't matter. Because Jesus said there are going to be many who say, I did these things in your name, Lord, and I, and I performed this and I performed that. And yet Jesus will say about them what? I never knew you. Be gone from me into everlasting darkness. 
Yeah, not life, Marion. Because they, uh, that's all right, which you were close, <laughs> was the opposite. The good sheep go to light, and, and the, that's right, and the goats go to hell. <laughs> that's right. So he says, many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, and I will say unto them, I never knew you. Be gone from me into everlasting darkness. So what we have to understand then is this book is really a huge challenge. It's a book that's basically all about examining yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. And he's saying, these are the evidences. This is how you can know if the rain falls on you and you're producing good vegetation, you are. But if you are, if the same rain is falling on you and you are not producing good vegetation, then he says, at least some of you may have come short of it. You need to fear and you need to reexamine yourself. And also the, the fear is the beginning of wisdom. That's exactly right. Okay, so... Um, we need a book theme, a title. We, we have been titling this book, Jesus is Better Than, right? I think there is, in the opening of this book, now that I've seen it as a book that um, is really about faith and faithfulness, right? About either entering into faith or being faithful in faith. We see one verse at the, at the end of chapter 10 where he says, And my righteous one shall live by faith, right? That might be a good title. But there are other possibilities as well, and we need to kind of meander through this a little bit together, if you guys can help me with this, because I haven't really titled it exactly yet. Um, let's go back to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where last week I was showing you how God is being proven as faithful and how Jesus is the fulfillment and he himself is faithful, right? So I took you through some verses last week about that. L let's go back to those first two verses. Somebody read that. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Okay, so you went through verse 3. But if we look at verses 1 and 2, what we see is that God spoke first where? In the prophets, through the prophets. And then now in this last day, he has spoken to us how? In his son. And in the, the, that first two, very first two verses, he actually sets the stage for what he's going to do in this entire book. He makes a contrast between God saying and then God doing. And in thereby showing himself as what? Faithful. He is faithful. And then later he keeps bringing it up over and over. There's lots of verses. If you go in and just look at the word faithfulness, how many times it's mentioned in here, you see that he is talking about God spoke and he did it. He was faithful. Jesus came and he, and he fulfilled it. He was faithful. He was a faithful as a son over God's house, right? And he who is faithful will do it, he says later in chapter 10, I think it was, right? Okay, so tell me, how might we want to try to title this book. If you had to come up with the title for Hebrews today, would you still continue with the Jesus is better than title? Do you think that would be? I mean, because if you want to keep it due, I mean, because precept, that's precepts title for this book. Um, but that doesn't make them 
the owner of this, right? That's the, the point to learning inductive Bible study is that we reason it through for ourselves and that we um, break it down, tear it apart, run through everything, think it all through, and then in the end we need to decide what is this book about. And I think one of the problems with the interpretations of this book is if you don't get the context really well and you don't recognize it for what it is, which is it's a sermon, Draw it, calling people in. It's, it's an evangelistic calling into faith. That's what it is, evangelism. This guy is an evangelist preacher, and he's saying, come into faith, and if you are in faith, be faithful. Okay, Jesus is the fulfilled word of God. That's, that's good. That's good. Are you sure? Are you sure? That's a good one. I like that one. Are you, oh, let's just write some of these down. Are you sure? Over here. Are you sure? And then you said, um, Carrie, what was yours? Okay. Okay, how about if we try to merge those two thoughts together and say, God is faithful, you be faithful. Would that work? God is faithful, you be faithful, or are you faithful? It could be, yeah, it could be uh, posed as a, are you faithful as well? Or are you faithful? And then that would be you faithful. Mm-hmm. Well, holy is not, is not the subject of faithfulness. So, and we do know that at this point, faithfulness is really the, the subject here. He wants them either to enter into faith. He says God was faithful. God spoke, and then he did it, and Jesus came, and he fulfilled it, and he's the faithful son. He's been faithful. Jesus was faithful. You be faithful. And as a matter of fact, then when we get to chapter 11, if we hold on to this theme, does chapter 11 not fit in here perfectly? The whole chapter 11 is about what? Men who were faithful. By faith he did this. By faith he did this. By now it makes sense, right? Maybe we could pull a verse out of chapter 11, something out of chapter 11 that would be um, men of old were faithful. You could add that in. God is faithful. Jesus is faithful. Men of old were faithful. You be faithful. Maybe we could just say... Um, faithfulness um let's see i had i have one on here our faithful god has spoken in his son but it doesn't address the next part of it which is the call into faith so i kind of like that god is faithful you be faithful i think it's a good one what do you guys think 
We don't have to wordsmith, but it's nice to, to get it as concise as you can. So here, the point to a title is for us to do what? To remember what's in the context of that book, right? So if you see on your observation worksheet or it written in your Bible, God was faithful, you be faithful. Are you going to remember what's in the book of Hebrews? Like in six months or eight months once all the cobwebs have set in and you've been out of it for a while and we're deep into the book of Kings and Chronicles, right? And then when you open up Hebrews for a cross-reference and you look in there, oh yeah, this is the one where he's calling us to faithfulness. God was faithful, you be faithful. Is that And actually, by using the word God, who is God in this book? God and Jesus. <laughs> so it covers both of them. God is faithful, God is faithful, right? Yes. That's absolutely right. Well, and, and the nice thing is it, this book, if you really want to just jump to that, it's right at the end of the book. If you jump to chapter 13, you could re go in there and say, this is how I know if I'm being faithful. Am I doing this? Am I doing this? Am I doing this? These are indicators of a faithful follower. Yeah. Yeah, it's the motivator for how you do it. That's true. That's true. Okay. In chapter 11, verse 40, it says, Because God has provided something better for us. God has provided something better for us. Mm-hmm. Yes. That goes back to Jesus is better. Jesus is better. So you, you might want to hold on to the title Jesus is Better as your book title. Um, but is that going to help you remember that the book is about the faithfulness of God and Jesus? And that the, it's the, in, in this book, the call is for us to be faithful or to come into faith, one or the other, whichever applies to you. Yes. I agree. I think now that I, now that I know what the real subject matter is in the book, chapter 11 is the crescendo. This is the, it's the crescendo for us as far as true application in our lives because as Heinz has been pointing out, you know, you got to go to 13 where he starts talking about what are reverential acts of service to God that he accepts, that's acceptable service. You know, for them, this was super important to have pointed out because they came from an old system that had them exercising all their reverential service to God through temple service. And God's saying, that's done, it's complete, Jesus has fulfilled it. So they had to be talked through what is reverential service to God in the new covenant, right? And they needed to have that. Is it important for us as well? Yes. Absolutely. And I, I think that, that knowing the book is about God's, the, the key subject is faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Great mercies we see. I love it. Yes. That's what she just said. That's, yes, what she just read. <laughs> yeah, and then that goes back to Jesus is better than, though, right? 
Now, does anybody, now, does, how, do, how did we end up talking, I don't know if we actually nailed that one down, but did you guys come to see what that was talking about there? That apart from us, they would not be what? Made perfect. Do you remember what verses I took you to when we went through that? I took you into Ephesians 4, 8, where it talks about when Jesus ascended on high, he took with him a host of captives and set them free. Do you remember? Apart from us, what was, were the, was the heavens open to anyone prior to the cross? No. no. And apart from us, no one would be made perfect. There was no perfection upon that altar in the, in the Holy of Holies in the presence of God until Jesus came and died and put the blood there. When he did that, he went into the bosom of Abraham, which we see in Luke 16, and he took, and he took with him the bosom of Abraham, which were all those who died in faith prior to the cross, and, he, and it says, and he took with him a host of captives and set them free. That old soul train, soul train songs from the black gospels about uh, getting on that soul train, that's what that's talking about, where Jesus takes a host of captives free. So apart from us, none of us would receive that. Okay, well, I'm just going to leave this kind of as a question mark for you guys then. I think God is faithful, you be faithful. I think I'm going to land there for me, but you guys can decide that for yourself. What you want to do is capture the essence of the, the theme. Now that we see the major subjects here, the major subjects is Jesus is better is one, but what are the others all about? Faith. Call to faith, a call to be faithful in faith, and warnings if you don't come into faith. So it's all about evangelism. <laughs> That's what he's doing. It's an evangelistic message, right? Okay, so let's do this now. Let's go. What time is it? We're good. Uh, let's go on now. Let's go back into the homework that you did this week then, and let's look at the let us things that we looked at. Because what we want to do is say in practicality, then what are we do to do? One of the, the verses I want to make sure we cover really well, so we're going to start there. I want to start with chapter uh, 13, verse 13. So I'm going to take you kind of to the middle of it. And, and I want to see how you came through this. Hold on, let's see if I can find my... I need to get my pieces of paper out here. All of this homework that we did. I, there was so much homework, don't you think? I mean, this was a lot of a lot of cross references. Okay. He says there therefore so now what he's saying he's he's in cha in uh, chapter 13 verse 10, he's making a comparison of the altar they serve at uh, uh, the, the altar that we serve at and the temple which they serve at. Old covenant versus new covenant, correct? Then again, he makes a statement about the difference between the animal's blood and the blood of Jesus. He's already explained in the book previously concerning the sacrifices, what? That Jesus is what? He's a better sacrifice, right? He's, a, he's better than the blood of animals. His is the blood which does what for us as opposed to what theirs did. His cleanses your conscience to serve the living God. Theirs did what? It was a reminder of sin. And therefore, what remained standing in the temple all through the time when that, that covenant was still active? 
the veil. And the veil separated the people from the presence of God. Once Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the veil? It was, it was torn into top to bottom, opening or exposing the Holy of Holies, telling the people what? The way to God is now open. You have access to enter into the presence of God because what has been taken care of? Your sin. Sin has been dealt with. You now, you now can approach God through the blood of Jesus Christ, boldly entering into his presence. Isn't that amazing? What a difference from the old to the new, right? Amazing difference. So that's what's being hinted at without a whole lot of elaboration. But then he says, therefore, because it's better, because we have an altar, by the way, of which they don't even get to participate in. We have an altar because they have rejected and refused to enter into it by the knowledge that's been given to them. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. So when you all looked at that, tell me what were some insights that you attained to in that homework assignment. This would have been day four's homework. Page 38, maybe, 37. Okay. Okay, so there's a reality that, in other words, when he's saying go outside the camp, Carrie is saying that what he's saying to that particular audience is come out of the temple, go outside of the, of the temple, leave that, right, and come out to Jesus. Okay. And the reproach that Jesus got for that, we are willing to accept that reproach. Okay, what, what does the word reproach mean? Did anybody do a word study on that? I'm going to get this up here. Let's do this. Let us is our major thing. Let us bear the reproach of Christ. That's in 1313. Now let's look at that word reproach. Word study. Did anybody do it? Is it just me? Okay, it means the word means disgrace. So bear his disgrace. Anything else? What else? Just guess at what you think it might mean to bear his reproach. What happened to Jesus when he was placed upon a cross by the Romans? Outside the city gate. What was the point, to, by the way, having him on a, cr on a cross outside the city gates? Can somebody give me some insights on that, Martha? Because Martha just went and did all this. Well, we know it couldn't be because of Scripture being foretold that it would not. Okay. What happened when the road, why did the Romans put people on the road outside of the city? There you go. So people would approach the city and they would see these horrible criminals dying on the cross, okay? No. 
It wasn't on the top of the hill. It was at the base of the hill. That's right. That's right. We talked about that. Was, I ca- kept calling it the summit, but it was at the base of the summit, right? He, he was crucified at the base of the summit of Mount Moriah, okay? And the reason we know this is because there's a scripture in Old Testament that talks about Abraham taking his son to Mount Moriah to be crucified, right? To be sacrificed to God. When, when God intervened in that moment just before he took his son's life, what happened? He gave him a ram in the thicket bush beside it. And when he did that, he, what did Abraham respond? God shall, that's right, in the, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. What mount of the Lord? Mount Moriah. One day later, in another story you hear, there's a uh, David and he has committed a, a sin. And he's um, now in battle and he's being backed up until he comes to a certain place and he and he bows to God and he says God judge me don't judge them he purchases that mountain and what is that mountain Mount Moriah what does he build there the temple eventually not him his son right so it's really neat because all these stories end up in, uh, intertwining so what he says is is at the at the at the base of the summit of that Mount Moriah, where in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided, Jesus was crucified, right? And when, for the Romans part of it, as the, uh, p- the travelers would pass by, they would see these criminals on the cross, and it would be a warning to them, do not transgress the laws of Rome, right? And in doing that, what would happen? What would people do as people would go by these Filthy, horrible people who had to be crucified. What would they say to them? What would they do to them? Right? There would be insult. There would be, there would be insult. There would be spitting upon him. There would be uh, shouting horrible words to him, right? Calling them terrible names. So this is the reproach, is what he's saying. Bear the reproach, disgrace, insult. Yeah, public reproach. So in a public way, he says, reproach. So he says, let us bear the reproach of Christ. What did Christ do? Christ suffered where? He, Jesus suffered outside the camp. And he did so innocent. That's tr- I love that. That's a good point, Diane. His suffering was, was through pure innocence. Was he guilty of anything? No. He was only th- there because God allowed his son to go to that cross by his predetermined plan. And uh, then there's a verse back in 10. So I'm going to go back to chapter 10, 32 to 34. Because when you're talking about suffering insult and reproach for the sake of Christ, right? What has this author already told them as by word of exhortation? What does he say? Yes. And he says, by the way, P.S., remember the former days when you have already even done this. He's really reminding them, you can do this. Jesus suffered 
outside the camp. And he's saying, you suffer outside the camp also. He's already told them, you've already done this to some degree. There have already been some things in your life that you have suffered through for the sake of Christ's name, bearing his name, right? And so then he says basically to them, what he wants them to do is do what? If he's wanting them to be a sharer in the sufferings of Christ, right? Share with him in the insults. How would this actually play out for these people? What is he literally asking them to do outside the camp? What are they leaving behind? Yeah, they're leaving the old system of worship and they're coming out to something different, right? And in doing so, they're having to bear with them, bear on themselves the possibilities of insults and, and disgrace, right? Persecution. The persecution. And in essence, this is a call to do what? There you go. Pick up your cross and follow me. That's exactly what this is. And it's really interesting to me where this falls in the line of all of this. He's saying, here's an altar call. Enter the new covenant. Don't refuse him. In gratitude, offer to God acceptable service. And then right in here you can say, pick up your cross and follow me. That's in uh, 13. 13. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, there is so much. Now, let's take it to us. For you and I, what does this tell you and I about walking in, in this relationship with Jesus Christ? What is, he, what is he warning us of and what is, he, what is this a call into? Is it a bed of roses that you've come into? Do you come to Jesus, your life's going to be great. Everything's going to be perfect. It's going to be smooth. No surgeries, no wayward kids, no, no financial problems, no health issues. That's, it's all going to be great because you're going to be saved. No, he said, I suffered this way again. Yes. So in this particular little spot right here in this text in chapter 13, one of the first things that I saw was this is a call to be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. It's a call that says, first and foremost, you must be willing to pick up the cross of Jesus and follow me. How many times in this book has he said, you must endure to the end? And if you do, don't endure to the end, then what? There, you, then you never were a part of him. But if you do endure to the end, then in fact you are of his house, and in fact you are... Um, his belonging to him basically you have come into your faith so pick up your cross and follow me is a mandate basically and it's a it's a call that says the 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 one that says count the cost right count the cost to discipleship with jesus you must understand that the call into faith is not a call to an easy road but it is a call to to some sacrifices in your life it isn't all going to be sacrifice it isn't all going to be doom and gloom, because you're going to have the power of God in you. He's going to, he, according to this, he is going to equip you and work in you. He will be with you. He will abide with you. He will never leave you. 
But you have to understand that when you go through tough times, you don't get to turn tail and run. Right? You don't get to whine and complain and grumble in the wilderness as those did who fell in the wilderness. I got to work on that one. <laughs> I know. I complain a lot. I'm a verbal person. You know, it just comes out. <laughs> and then later I'm like, well, but God's sovereign. You know, I know the truth. I just, you know, the mouth keeps running again, right? Okay. Um, so in essence, there's another thing in this one. One more point about let us bear his reproach, because this is this to me was number one. The next the next thing is in 13. 14, what does he tell them that basically they are to keep their eyes on? It really goes back to what you brought up er earlier. What does he want them to do? Seek on, yeah, keep your eyes on the goal. Set your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He kept his eye on the goal. You keep your eyes on Jesus. And here he's saying, and keep your eyes on what? The eternal glory that's to come, the, heaven, the, the heavenly city that's to come. Yes. Uh, so keep your eyes. That's your motivation. This is what's going to help you. Keep your eyes on the city to come. Okay. So if you want to give God an acceptable service, this is the first place to start. Understand you're picking up a cross in a faith walk with him. That there must be a willingness on your part to suffer if you, if you are so called to do. And I can guarantee every one of us has something to bear. It, we're all different. That's why chapter 11 is so awesome. Because look at all the varieties of ways people suffered. Some of them suffered and then God rescued them. Some of them suffered and they died. Right? Okay, let's go to the next one. Now let's go back to the very beginning. Um in chapters 1 through 3, and let's just start at the beginning and kind of systematically go through what you did in your homework. What is the first thing we're called to? This is very interesting that it becomes the very first thing on the list of how you can give God reverential service. Love of the brethren. So the subject is love, and let love of the brethren, I can't remember if it says endure, I can't remember, continue, there we go, to get my page here open, I need more, more fingers and more spots to lay stuff, and I'm going to take that out there so I can see it, okay, all right, tell me what we saw, you looked at some cross-references, what did you learn about the subject of love from a biblical teaching on it here? If you're going to do what God wants you to do, you have to understand these things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
have there been people in your life that say, well, I love you, but then they just te- they treat you badly over and over and over, and after a while you begin to doubt their love? Because you can only tell a person that you love them so many times, but then if you don't treat them like you love them, then the reality is you don't love them, right? Okay, or you don't understand what love is. So love is indeed and truth. And I like indeed and in truth. I like the second part myself a lot because there's also times when, when, uh, when we are going to love a person that sometimes it has to be what they call tough love, right? Because you cannot violate what? You cannot violate doctrine in order to show them love. If you have to commit a sin or have to go in contrary to what God's word says about something in order to make them happy, then guess what? You just don't do it, do you? You don't express love in that way. You do not lower your standards. You do not come, d- come down into the pits of darkness in order to make someone in your life happy. Love will always stand on truth as its, as its foundation, will stand on the doctrines of God's principles, and then they love. They love indeed, but first and foremost, they love in truth. truth. Okay? But how are you going to know the truth? You have to be in, again, press into maturity, right? Be, be, tra- be trained by the word of righteousness, and th- you might know good from evil, right? That's right. Okay. Um, what verse was that one in, indeed in truth? Uh, first John, I think, right? First John, was it three? 16 to 19. Okay, I just want to write something up here. Okay, you're going to love in deed and in truth. That's how you're going to do it. What else? Yeah. I love this one. Celeste, this goes back to what you said earlier. In First John 4.20, what does he say? <laughs> See, you liar. <laughs> right? If you say that you if you say that you love God, but you do not love your fellow man on the whole, if you're a person who is very angry at the world around you and 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 unloving toward them all the time. In other words, no grace, no no sense of Mercy, exactly. No sense of even empathy in, uh, for other people in their situations. That doesn't mean you have to, you know, become a, a, an enabler for a person who's doing things that they shouldn't be. But there needs to be love and compassion and mercy because you cannot say, I love God, but then treat the world and the people around you without love, without mercy, right? Because if you do that, you're a liar, So we're going to put that on here. Love. The one. So again, this is kind of supplementing what we've learned in Hebrews, that if, in fact, you have the Spirit of God in you, and if, in fact, you've come into faith, then you will be obedient. Right? The one who obeys me is the one that loves me. The one who says they love God. but hates his brother. Is a liar. In other words, th- th- they are lying about their love for God. They don't either 
either understand love nor do they do, do they know God, right? How do we actually love God? By keeping his commandments. Right. Love God by keeping his commandments. That's in 1 John uh, 5, 3, I think. Okay, one of the chapters we went to is 1 Corinthians 13, right? In verse 4 to 8. It's a very famous passage for all of us, right? So when she asked you to go through the whole thing really carefully, and what I did is I went in and looked at it in a different translation, in a paraphrase, to get it really down to some adjectives that are creative and, and expressive more, just to see how they really developed this, and it was very helpful to me. In the end, did you draw a conclusion about what's being said there, just a generality about it? There you go. Okay, so true love is always looking at others. I wouldn't say not yourself, but above yourself, right? Okay, I agree, too. We all agree. <laughs> all right. Any other thoughts about this? I'm waiting for Heinz to <laughs> pitch in. Because, you know, this is your, this is your subject, application. Well, I'm looking for uh, okay. <laughs> you can't find it, huh? <laughs> okay. So love, love is, um, say, tell me that again. Love is what? is putting others above self. Okay, the, I'll put 1 Corinthians. See, some of this, this is why I saved this part for the last. Some of this is so obvious to us who have been in the Word of God a long time. It, this is more like just a review of things that we know. But it really is, I think, beneficial to just rehash it through in your mind, re-meditate on these things because I think we become sloppy and lazy sometimes about remembering the real point to our faith walk. Yeah. That's right. You know, there's a verse that you just made me think of. There's a verse that says, if you say unto someone, Raka, or what was the other one, um, you fool, then it's equal, he says, to murder, right? Why? That kind of hatred for a fellow man, why does God consider that equal to murder? Okay, C because you're hating in your heart, okay? But if you, if you, Celeste, said to me, Kate, Katie, you fool. And in that, 
What would my be response be to that if you did that to me? Yeah, what, yeah, well, what, what, okay, it would create anger. And you claim to be a Christian. You've now stirred up anger in me. Now, how am I going to feel about you, Christian? And when I don't like you, Christian, what else am I not going to like? I'm not going to like your God. And so in that, the, d can you see what kind of a murder that creates? What kind of murder would you call that? That's not physical murder. It's what? It's a spiritual murder. It's an action of spiritual murder. You are... You are pushing them away from God by, by your attitude toward them as an individual. So when you treat a person unkindly, and in this case, especially in anger, and say raka, or, and I, which I can't remember now what that means, but, or you fool, then you put a, a, a wall between them and God. Yes, that's exactly what it is. That person says, well, if that's the kind of uh, thing that a Christian does, if that's what you call a Christian, I want nothing to do with it. And so you cause that person to walk away from God. And in doing so, then you have, have committed a spiritual, a form of spirit, potentially. Now, that doesn't mean that person still got to come around. They can't be forgiveness later. And you can't realize later that you you know, sinned in that. And if you've ever done that and you know it, you need to apologize if it's fresh. <laughs> Hopefully it isn't on any, for any of us. But if that does happen, then you need to apologize. There you go. Exactly. You are putting up an obstacle between them and God. Okay, so that's love. Let's go to the next one. There's, um, there's others. Which one would you guys like to cover? We're going to run short here. Showing hospitality. Uh, remembering prisoners. Were some other things? Let's put on here. Number three, show hospitality. Now, this is a good one to just mention, by the way. Who is called to show hospitality? Everyone. Everyone. When you come to the spiritual gifting, is there a gift of spiritual gift of hospitality? No, not really. Hospitality, everyone is called to do it. We're all called to be hospitable, to, to be hospitable, just so you know that. That's a common thing. I mean, when you do a spiritual gifts class and you actually list them, hospitality is not in there. It sa he says we're all to practice hospitality. Okay. Why? What is hospitality? In the it's a form of loving another person, isn't it? What is, as a matter of fact, when we look at the word hospitality in scriptures and we go back and we look at th the ones specifically that are absolutely, you must be one who is given to hospitality, who are these people that, that were addressed? People who would be overseers. If you're a person who's going to be in a position of leadership, if you're going to be a person who is going to be a spiritual mentor, then you must be a person who is given to hospitality. And so, let's, what is hospitality? Okay. In what way? But specific, it, would you say this is a more on a emotional level or is this a physical level showing hospitality physical it's a literal opening up of your home and showing hospitality that's what this is he, he says um 
be devoted to one another in brotherly love, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. There you go. Very good. Being willing to give things to others as they are in need of it. Right. I know. Yeah, it is, absolutely. And I like what you said where it, it actually falls right in there with the idea of the love of money because that's one of the next ones that we, that we, hit, we hit really quickly. In, in chapter 13, 5, it says, uh, let your character be free from the love of money and be con- basically content with the things that you have. If you are content with the things that you have and you, have a, and you are free from the love of money, are you more likely to be hospitable or less likely? More, more likely. How many times in your experience as a Christian have you found that often the most hospitable people are the ones who have the least to offer Uh, often that's not to say that the other cannot be true I mean people who have a lot are often very very generous as well it's all the heart but what it what it is is you learn to be content in whatever circumstance God has put you in if you and what did Paul say about that I have learned what I have learned to be content whether I'm, whether I'm what? Poor or in, ri- in wealth, right. Whether I have plenty to eat or not very much, I'm in want. And so he, yes. I think one of the ways it manifests is through all things to the Lord. Because how can you have people who just say, you know, I'm helping with that lunch or this, that, or the other thing? And that's not the point. The point is they're devoted to the Yes, right. Devoted to um, a- another In love, it says, and that's in Romans uh, 12. I'm going to try to get these, some of these on here, 9 to 13. Okay, it, it is, showing hospitality uh, is, if you're a person that, that whether you have a lot or, or a little, it doesn't really matter, but if you're a person that is going to show hospitality, how much of that would you say you have to rely on uh, God to lead you in it, to know when and where and how and who, you know? Would you say there's an awful lot of want in our world around us? Yeah. Yeah. Are there a lot of people in need, but they're in need maybe even for their own fault, (laughs) for their own fault? And so by that then, would you say there needs to be spiritual discernment in how you handle each individual person? Yes. Yes. Definitely. And when, you c- when it comes right down to the bottom line and you are personally faced with the decision, do I or do I not? I just had an encounter with this. You have to trust what? The Spirit. The Spirit of God to lead you to know the right thing to do. I just had an encounter with a situation where a person took in another person who was homeless and this particular lady has been going from home to home to home. You know, I don't want to be critical, but basically just letting everybody else take care of her and her not taking care of herself. And she's been doing this for years, not just short. I, I have known of her personally for um, maybe eight or nine years. 
in my neighborhood, and she's, I've known she's gone from house to house to house, and she stirs up trouble. She talks badly about everybody. It's really been, so when I had this encounter with someone, I found out that they were extending hospitality, but she sat at that table the whole time we were there, and what did she do the whole time? Complained, complained, complained about this person. I thought, so if you're going to offer hospitality, what must you do? You must pray about it, and if, in fact, you've made the decision to be hospitable to that person, what should your, yeah, what should your attitude be? One of love, because what does it do to your testimony if you take someone in to show hospitality, but then you complain about it the whole time, and you feel like you're being um, taken advantage of when you're the one that opens your door? And d- does, it, does it matter how we extend hospitality? I think that's why he said being devoted to one another in love, in brotherly love, is an important quality of extending hospitality. Yes, Carol. Yes. Yeah. Well, and it means both, obviously. I mean, because the person may be a stranger, it may be someone, you know, maybe a brother in faith that is a stranger even that you didn't know before, but, you know, they're not really a stranger if they're in covenant with you through faith in Christ, but maybe you didn't know them. So it means both. Hospitable means to open your home in any capacity and share what you have with others. So did you have a question? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, it's very... That's true. Okay, and if you think about it, look at the first thing that was brought up is love, right? That is That love is talking about um, reaching out to your brother, and if you say you, you love God but you hate your brother, right? But then the next one in hospitality, it extends that, that circle out further to now even strangers, right? So in that, hospitality, would you say that hospitality is an expression of love? Yes, so you're taking the love from the inner circle and you're now going to a little bit bigger radius. Eventually, that radius goes to what? The whole world. It could be you show hospitality even in, to some measure, through the supports that you give to someone else so that they can bring someone into their home, potentially. I mean, there's there's a lot of ways you can grow this, I think, in your mind. Well, that's what we're just, okay, you tell me, what do you think, Lisa? Okay. Absolutely. But that, that subject is not actually addressed here, but you're right. But, but the fundamental question is, as a Christian, should you love both within the household of faith and those outside of the household of faith. Yes, that's what the point is, I think, in this particular passage here. He's not talking about being cautionary as to what you do and how you do it. We know we live in a dangerous world, and we know we need to be careful. It used to be you could pick people up in your car and give them a lift. You, you better be real careful about doing that now. Yeah, you, it, it's pretty dangerous. But so, Lisa, y- the answer is God is simply calling us to a life of loving and hospitality. And that is to both the household of faith and to the world. Okay? 
I know. But w w if you, we really didn't um, build the, the subject very much. We didn't really. But if you take it and you look at the subject of love and hospitality, it will, if you made a list and did a, several things, you would find that it hits the whole world. Okay? All right. I think we're getting close to out of time. Okay, so we looked at love. We looked at hospitality. Um, honoring the marriage bed. Uh, those are pretty obvious points there, right? We know that we, that we are to um, honor the marriage bed according to it. That's another way that you actually show God reverential love and an appropriate service. Did you ever consider that your intimate life has to do with serving God as well? That's pretty cool to think of it in that way, right? All right. Um, be strengthened by God's word. And what is the cautionary note in here also? For, re for reverential service to God, you're going to be strengthened by God's word, right? But what are you going to be careful of? Strange and varied teachings. Not being carried away by strange and varied teachings. And by doing that, you are, again, showing God reverential service. Okay? Imitate and pray for others or, and pray for your leaders. And don't many of you try to be teachers because you're going to get stricter in judgment. <laughs> Can I quit teaching now? I think we're done. <laughs> we're at the end. <laughs> I don't want any more judgment for today. So <laughs> thank you guys so much for enduring to the end on this. This was a really, really challenging study. Have a wonderful break. For we got Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's coming up. If anybody 